0: freewheeling podcast i'm abby mickey and i'm your host for today's episode lauren rowney and i were joined by jenny of london bike kitchen WCCG, which you will learn about shortly. And I mean, just in general, she's doing some really amazing stuff in the v- bike sphere, not so much road racing or professional road racing or anything like that, but more riding a bike, commuting on a bike, just bikes in general. Um, and we had a ton of fun talking to her. So hope you enjoy this episode and thank you so much for listening. All right, so we have a very special guest on the podcast today, Jenny Gwizdowski.
1: Yeah. Yes. That's the one.
0: And (laughs) 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 it's really awesome. Jenny has an incredible Paul, Paul Mares, I guess, like in the terms of cycling, pro cycling, which is what Lauren and I usually talk about. So, Jenny, before we jump into kind of the bulk of the episode, I would like you to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself.
1: Who are you? Yes, of course. Um, thank you for having me on. Uh, my name is Jenny Guzdowski. I am the uh, director of the London Bike Kitchen founder and uh, also one half of the Wheel Suckers podcast. I've written a book called How to Build a Bike and have founded the Women of Color Cycling group in well it's the UK now we're UK wide um and I guess I could start from the beginning well kind of where this path started so uh, I'm originally from California as you can tell I'm not from the UK and uh grew up in San Diego where we just we we rode bikes as kids and then the minute I turned 15 I was like I'm gonna go drive and uh in, and just Denver looked back like i mean for a while because it it was always about cars um americans love their cars too much and love them they got big <laughs> though um and uh i went to uni uh in northern california went to berkeley go bears and um ended up working at an after-school program called the Making Waves Education Program, which is not around anymore, but it was a really great program where we were teaching kids after school like um, basic skills, but also um, providing like a lot of emotional and family support. And that's where I became really interested in teaching. I really love teaching in general. Um, I love imparting knowledge and information i feel like everyone is just better off when we share information with each other um and unfortunately at that time this was like early 2000s uh when george bush was elected president and also was i was in an emotionally abusive relationship and the only way anything was going to change i knew is if i left the country and so i moved to japan And uh, my family, my mom's side of the family is Japanese. So uh, I had kind of like a personal desire to go and see, you know, um, my roots and but also just do something completely different. And that was actually a huge pivot point for me where I um, kind of rediscovered myself and what I was capable of doing. So I started doing a lot of event planning there. Um, with the other English teachers in our prefecture, but also my school gave me a bicycle to get around. And this was me getting reacquainted with what a bicycle could do for you. It wasn't just a kid's toy. It was became my transportation. It became my um, way of uh, portaging uh, equipment around. It became a social thing or uh, just something that... Was integrated into your life and you just didn't even think about it because everyone had a bike in Japan. Most people do. And everyone respects people who are on a bicycle. They don't try to run you over. And it was a really wonderful place to get reacquainted with all the possibilities of the bicycle. And then I ended up, after three years in Japan, moved to London and I started working at an environmental charity and also was commuting to work now by bicycle and the drivers here are very different they um, feel like they own the road for some reason and so you really have to stick up for yourself you have to be assertive in your cycling and the funny side effect of that is it makes I think it makes people more assertive in general and I found myself becoming more confident because of this is an area where I'm forced to be assertive and it's like well this is now trickling into other aspects of my life and I started to think about how awesome the bike is and cycling is in general and how it solves so many of our current issues with like climate change you know it Mm. um environmental issues transportation issues Uh, health and um, social inequalities like it just it's such a leveler and it really solves a lot of problems it's just we've got this block I think as a western society that the bike is just for kids so anyways uh, like I started to think um I want to work in the bike industry somehow but also selfishly wanted to build a bike from scratch. And I had no idea at this time I could maybe fix a puncture and, uh, change my brake pads. And that was it. And everything else was a mystery. It was just this mysterious piece of metal and it just somehow worked and on a hope and a prayer. And I didn't like that feeling. I didn't like not understanding what was going on. So I, I asked my, my, friends like you know i want to build a bike from scratch where do i start and everyone gave me like different opinions it's like googling the internet like (laughs) you'll get so many different ideas on where to start and i was just like i want to be really prescriptive i want a teacher in a classroom telling me what what to do and why doesn't this exist and my flatmate at the time who's also from california but she was uh, a more recent transplant Um, Asked me if I had heard of a bike kitchen before, and I was like, What? What's a bike kitchen? And uh, the more research I did on them, the more intrigued I was because it was these open workshop spaces where um, typically run by volunteers and had a bunch of like random secondhand parts around, and you could just tinker and work on your bike, and people would answer your questions. And I thought, I'm going to set up one in London and like genuinely naive not knowing anything about starting a business or being a mechanic or anything about the bike industry but i, w- I was just like i can't be alone in this I- there must be other people who want to learn how to take care of their bikes and um be able to maintain them regularly so that's the other thing with like london is space is a premium and people don't have places to store their bikes they can't work on their bikes in a garage like they that's why going somewhere else to work on their bikes uh makes sense and i think that's one of the reasons why this idea works in london um where people will uh it's like a an extension of the what do they call it like a third space yeah i
0: mean you don't like london being a city i i know uh, where we live in spain there's like no one has a garage you have like a pile of tools in the corner and I yell at my I yell at Tom's every time he brings his bike in the house to mess with so I totally get the yeah like wanting to have kind of like at the one in the one hand it's kind of an escape from home yeah Yeah. a little bit like it's kind of like being able to you know book lovers go to the library yeah (laughs) kind of And so in that sense, it makes sense. But it's also really interesting to me listening to you talk about it, because I always picture like a bike shop as a very hostile environment. Yeah. Like I've I don't think I've ever I've never once gone into a bike shop and been like welcomed in Mm -hmm. and like been been able to ask questions about like, okay, so how would I do this?
2: Can I just having a place? Is it because yeah. you're a woman? Because there's a. I've got something written down here that I want to talk about, but mm. do you ever feel that, Abby?
0: No, I've actually, I was in Boulder with a one of the World Tour pros who I will not name. And he went to one of the Boulder bike shops and asked them if he could borrow a Di2 charger. He was like, "Can I, I'll just leave my bike here and just let it charge for an hour. And he said it was the worst experience he's ever had. Like the people were just so rude, wow. so mean. It was like he was inconveniencing them. and And I feel like that's pretty much... Like that when I think bike shop I'm like yeah that's that's what I think.
2: I actually get nervous going to the bike shop and okay my situation's a bit different. I moved to Belgium and I'm still grasping the language. So I try in Dutch but then obviously go to Engl- English English mm. when I I can't stumble my way through. Now it's much better but actually in April I had to get my bike serviced and I don't know why I was just super nervous um I was told to go to this bike shop because everyone said this guy was the best. And I thought, okay, well, I've got, you know, SRAM and I want it done properly. And the guy in my town who's a really lovely guy, he's never worked with SRAM. So I thought I'll take it to the shop. And when I arrived, I immediately just felt uncomfortable. Mm. And he kind of looked at me as like I was an idiot. And I thought, oh, maybe I should just throw in like I used to race bikes. So, like, he understands I do understand things about bikes. But um, he took my bike away. He did a whole bunch of things to it, called me a couple of days later. I showed up and um, he said, oh, yeah, I've had to to change, like, the derailleur completely. And I have, um, you know, eTap. That's wow. very expensive, right? Yeah. And yeah. I was like, what do you mean? Like, I was riding my bike literally two days ago before I brought it like well, why did you have to change it and then I was alone and I didn't know how to to get myself out of the situation I want to say I don't want to pay for this like you've just put on a completely new fucking group set then I didn't he even gave ask. me the bill he gave me the bill and it was through the roof like wow. talking 900 euros and I was just like I, I didn't know what to say I was so just upset I called my friend who recommended it and she's like what the fuck, like, what, what happened?
0: Lauren, I'm going to have to bleep out all of your swearing. Sorry.
2: <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but um, I'm just kidding. Yeah, this was totally just my it. experience. And, like, since then, I've just never been back. And I've heard now from various people, this guy's done it to several women. Wow. This bike shop thing, sorry, Abby, this, I would love something like that where I want to learn because being a pro, I always handed my bike to the mechanic and then, never question what was being done to it.
1: Yeah. You know, yeah. you have to trust the person that's doing it as well.
2: I guess that
0: makes a lot of sense when you're starting or when you're kind of, you walk into some place, a, a place like the London Bike Kitchen and maybe you don't know what you're doing, but it sounds like an open environment where you can be like, I don't know how to do this. Exactly. Can somebody assist
1: me? Exactly, Was that
0: kind of a must when you were making it? Was like having it be an inclusive environment?
1: Yeah, I mean, like from the get-go, from the start, it was always going to be it's okay to not know something. Like, y- in fact, it's better to know that you don't know something because you're less likely to. Uh, sorry, I was about to curse. Um, you're less likely. <laughs> no, to you can
0: totally curse. I was just making fun <laughs> of Lauren.
1: Okay, um, and it's <laughs> but it's not just a. Uh, an issue with for women i think it's an issue for men as well and we live in a society that really expects men to pretend like they know what they're doing mm. um like it's a weakness if you show uh, any sign of i don't know something and so what ends up usually happening is guys end up breaking something on their bike and then they bring it to us and they're like i did something <laughs> and, uh, can you fix it um but uh from the start, it was always going to be, this is about education. You may not be able to fix your bike, but you will learn why. And it's about transparency. And it's about building that trust with people. And we, so we would get like return. I mean, basically I'm, my goal is to get people to get to know their bikes better. So they don't ignore them when problems come up, because if you ignore it, it just gets worse. And then you then you get the bill that's like 300 pounds. And it's like brushing your teeth, you just do it every day. And it's boring. And you do it doesn't take much time. But in the end, it saves you from getting that root canal, like the root canal is the repair, the maintenance is what's going to prevent those big repairs from happening. And it's but it's all part of education, because no one Especially in maybe um, excluding Holland and or sorry the Netherlands and Belgium, like people in the Western world uh, just view bikes as toys and they view them as for some it, either disposable or they're meant to last forever, which are two competing thoughts and they neither of them are true. So it's they need they need maintenance and. It's not hard, but if someone doesn't show you how it works, then how are you going to know?
0: So when you started the London Bike Kitchen, you were not a mechanic.
1: No, not at all.
0: How did you go from starting the London Bike Kitchen to writing a book on how to build (laughs) a bike?
1: Um, The funny thing is being at the London Bike Kitchen, being around all these different bikes coming in and is an education in itself. So I did, before we opened, I did a um, city and guilds level two mechanic training. It's just like a week. And that was kind of a test for me to see, do I like this? Is this what I want to do with my life? And I loved it. It was so much fun to just, it's like being a bicycle mechanic is like being a problem solver. You're You're constantly having to deal with puzzles on the bike and experience it doesn't mean that you're going to solve them straight away it just means you solve them faster so i like um you know the the um how do you say it? like a step by step it's process of elimination that's what i mean where you're like well it could be this you test it it's not that when you, you think oh i've seen this before i'm test it it's not that so it's like constantly just puzzle solving, problem solving. Um, and I ended up, I think one of the bigger lessons was hiring the right people. So unfortunately, because at the beginning, I didn't really know any mechanics. I just asked around to see who was interested and didn't necessarily get the right group of people. Um, but eventually, you know, it's I think hiring people is a difficult period. And when we were starting, it was I'm not now I would say I'm not looking for mechanics necessarily. I'm looking for teachers, Yeah, people who are really good with people. They're good at conveying information in different ways because people learn in different ways. Uh, people who are patient. Um and willing to explain things. So this is where it really differs from a bike workshop where you just drop your bike off and it disappears and you have no idea what's happening. Um, and in for us, it's very much like a Dorothy, Wizard of Oz, pulling back the curtain and it's like, oh, this is how it works. Like we're gonna show you and, but you have to want to learn.
0: So in building this this bike kitchen and also finding the right people to staff it, It sounds like you also put together a pretty awesome community of like-minded people who were interested in getting to know their bikes, for one. And also, you know, I would totally buy the person who helped me fix my bike a beer.
1: (laughs) Yeah, there was that as well. I mean, well, this is another way that we differ from um, the U.S. bike kitchen projects in that we pay our staff a living wage. So we run officially, oh sorry, unofficially as like a worker co-op, and uh, people are paid the same rate. And I have I feel very strongly about people being paid for the work that they do, and it means that we created a set pricing structure for people to use the workshop, which was still cheaper than taking your bike to a bike shop and dropping it off uh, yeah. and you'd get the education as well. And it also meant that we could pay our overheads as well as our workers to retain them. Because if you run on volunteers, if that volunteer has to go work for any reason, then you're lost without, you can't do anything without them. So mm-hmm. it's kind of creating that um, environment where the knowledge is valued and uh people are compensated for their time and but it's also still like very open and transparent and we try to be equal equitable that sort of thing mm-hmm.
0: plus it uh, with like a sense of pride because your job is essentially helping someone yeah help themselves yeah it's the old teach a person to fish.
1: Exactly. And the funny thing is I get mechanics that, um, come in who really love it because they are being listened to. So the, there's often this, a bit of antagonism between in, in a, a typical bike shop, you get the antagonism between, and you've both experienced this between the mechanic and the customer. Um, the customer doesn't trust the mechanic and thinks and you know maybe they have like done some shady things and put the wrong derailleur or just upgraded your bike without you your permission uh, and then for some reason in other situations you get mechanics who um, just really can't deal with people like they are not people people uh, they will just be rude and so you just don't have this really it's not like a symbiotic relationship it doesn't work (laughs) um so having mechanics come in and teach it changes the relationship between the customer and the mechanic and that mechanic becomes the teacher now and the customer does listen to what the mechanic is saying and it it's a totally different different dynamic it's it's so much nicer I would so much rather teach someone about their bike than fix their bike for them. Mm. And
0: you do class, like you do like workshops as well too, because I I would like to come.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, that's the core core of it. I prefer, I mean, obviously we haven't um, done any in real life teaching since COVID lockdown, but, and I've started teaching online, um, but it is not the same. Um, no not you at can't all. you can't be learning in person um i really miss it but at the same time like um you know we've been alerted to people who have had covid who have been in contact with our workshops. so we have to be really careful
2: um so you've been getting people from all different demographics so people with just town bikes the ones that are commuting and then of course also racing bikes what percentage of women are you getting coming into the london bike kitchen
1: um so at the beginning it was very much uh young white males in their 20s and 30s often working in uh tech or Mm -hmm. architects for some reason really (laughs) love it it's weird we're getting a real disproportionate number of architects coming in and this is all through like chatting with them because like I mentioned our workshop is so small like we're forced to interact with each other and we just you know you talk and you learn people's names and that was that was good because we needed the early adopters to find out if this idea was viable and uh and at the beginning people were really weirded out by the idea some people didn't like it they were like why would i pay you to then have myself fix my bike and i'm like no you're not getting it it's not about that it's about the education and the learning aspect of it so but like most people that came in were really keen and at the beginning it was um young white men and also at the very beginning i knew that like uh targeting minority groups would be important and I started up the women in gender variant night with someone who uh, identified as gender gender variant and they made up the name um, because a, a, wag to me means nothing or it's like what dogs do but like in the UK it stands typically for wives and girlfriends uh, <laughs> and yes we, we thought we'd turn it on its head and it st- it stood for women and gender variant um and that was very slow at the beginning to pick up it took i think about a year or two before we started to get like a gen- like a, a consistent group of about 10 people coming in um to w- wag nights and it, we also were playing with like do we do it once a month do we do it twice a month do we do it every week like There's a lot of experimenting and a lot of, uh, you know, mistakes, but I don't like to use that word. It's just, you know, um, I don't know what word to use. Lessons. There are a lot of lessons, um, a lot of challenges, a lot of um, things, hurdles to get over. But we finally figured out with Londoners, it works as every other week. So twice a month uh Monday evenings. Um, and we had a set schedule because women tend to like a schedule. They like knowing what's coming up. Um and they would then like bring a friend, that sort of thing. And it, it just made it easier for us to plan as well, instead of just making it random. Um, but in different cities you have different situations. But I just think Londoners tend to like to overbook themselves. So they'll they'll have like three things going on one night and then whatever they feel like doing, that's what they'll do. And the other two will lose out. So, um, the, and we made the wag nights free because we wanted to, again, remove any sort of barrier, like make it really easy for people to just check it out, have a go, um, see if it's something for them, because I think you have to, you can't make it this super expensive uh, hobby or pastime to be to start off with because then you'll only get rich people coming in, and well, that's, that's not what it's about.
2: Yeah, it's a common misconception. I was listening to actually the the live panel discussion that um, your podcast did mm. about diversity in cycling, and one of the things that came up was. You know, cycling is perceived as being exclusive, whereas, you know, one of the people on the panel was saying, um, yeah, he was riding back in the 70s, 60s, and back then it wasn't at all. It was still very much like a working class mm-hmm. um, sport, but it's just become this really flashy, shiny thing now that, yeah. you know, the, the, the term is always coined the new golf but yeah. it's, it's really not. And um, living in Belgium, I see it that you, you have the two sides of it. Um, you've got everyone here that just uses the bike as a tool for transportation and then you've got your club runs and people are still running the same 10-, 15-year-old bike and then you've got the guys that want to invest in their €12,000 yeah. specialised. <laughs> but um, I still feel like sometimes there is that stigma about it being exclusive and I can imagine that if you're a person – um, of color, that would also be somewhat off-putting.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it's an image problem. And mm. I think the industry is still dealing with it. You know, it's been brought up over the past few years very clearly by people like Aisha McGowan. And, like, she's doing a lot of campaigning around this, where you've got to, I mean, her phrase is do better. Like you can always do better. You can do one step more. Um, I have, I have real issues with what's going on right now with Trek and they're sponsoring athletes who are openly racist. And I'm like, wow, that's, yeah, that's kind of where, that's the, dark side of the industry uh, and in addition to like the planned obsolescence of the industry like the constant upgrading which is part of that like you know capitalist mm-hmm, uh, society white supremacist patriarchy you know it's just um reinforces the idea that you can you have to come constantly compete there can only be one number one like it's and that is very much attached to the cycling image because for some reason we are stuck on bikes that are only you know promoted through racing yeah and cycling is not about racing like it's a lot of different things and for some reason it's the racing that's the really attractive bit for marketers to use but they forget about the the fun they forget about the utility um they forget about how like it's it's just a great way to get around and it it's quiet and yeah, so I just uh, i forgot what the the question was but, <laughs> oh it's like basically cycling's image problem is yeah it's it's got a big one, and it's unfortunately on individual uh brands to decide like, oh, okay, let's, let's try things a bit differently.
2: And um, I have to say, I just, um, I didn't realize you're Jenny from Velocio because I'm on the European Slack channel. I'm also ah, an ambassador. So now to, to talk with you, but, um, Velocio, I have to say is a company that really, you know, does always, they're always striving to be better.
1: Yeah. That's, that's part
2: of their, their, yeah, their motto, their values. Yeah. And um, since everything that's happened this year, they've really made a huge push. And um, I think that's a really great thing to see that we are seeing brands within the industry really looking at themselves and saying we have to do better.
1: Yeah. And I I really admire Velletio for doing that. And it is one of the reasons why I signed up as an ambassador with them because I was like, this is a company I can stand behind.
2: And their stuff is just amazing and oh, also yeah. ethically minded. Um well and I made. just think well made and sustainable, which is everything you actually want in a product.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: What's really interesting about the image problem that cycling has is that racing is like a tiny, tiny, tiny section of what bikes are. Yeah. Like Grant, I mean, if we're going just with kind of the drop bar market. Grand Fondos are huge, kind of like those mass participation rides are getting more and more exciting. But we're also seeing like this new renaissance in mountain biking, in mm-hmm. cross-country mountain biking. And of course, gravel is like massive. And when it, an actual like drop bar aerodynamic road racing is, I would say, the smallest section of
2: cycling really in the in the world. Yeah, And I feel like since COVID happened, I've just seen this huge emergence, at least locally here, and adventure riding and people just, yeah, just putting on their handlebar bag. I think those sales went through the roof during COVID. Oh, yeah. Um, I tried to get my hands on one and they were just like sold out everywhere. And people were just getting on their bikes and then just going for a whole day. And, like, I had friends who were packing beers and backpacks and just having fun with it. Um, It didn't matter about the speed or the distance or destination as such and for me that has been the most refreshing thing since retiring is like i ride when i want to ride and sometimes i don't even put on the wahoo and record it at all it's mostly just because i get lost and i need a map in belgium
1: (laughs) but um i'm I'm like anti-garmin i'm like never i hate it
2: but you know since moving to belgium these tiny farm roads I swear my sentence direction is just shocking and I rely on maps now, whereas I think the first two years when I, I stopped with racing, I just refused to use one and I used to just ride um, and I knew where I was going. So. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's been a really cool thing to see, at least from from my point of
1: view, because,
2: yeah, I, I just – I don't really like suffering anymore and I just want to yeah. ride my bike for fun and meet new people.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I think that there's still room in the industry to grow and change into those areas. Like there really is. Like the and and you everything you just listed is also just leisure riding. Like we haven't talked about transportation or utility where people can take and you. I'm sure you see this in Belgium, but um, people taking their kids to school on bikes. Oh yeah, or, the box. Yeah, they're yeah. just that should be normalized like riding a bike to go to the shops should be normalized like, and it should be safe and it, yeah. And it, uh, it makes me really happy thinking about it, but also I I sit and think about how apparently the London bar of Kensington and Chelsea are tearing out one of the really popular COVID pop-up cycle lanes because the daily mail has an issue with it. So there's, there's some vitriol out there that is being spewed and um, about like anti-cycling, which doesn't help anyone, I think. It's quite
2: (laughs) often fueled by the media. I mean, obviously coming from Australia, we have the same issues as you would probably have in the US and in in the UK is that there's this very negative perception about cyclists. And I have to admit some of the guys that I know that do ride, like, they definitely haven't helped our reputation as as people on bikes yeah but I do see that in general people do want to commute more but my my mother for example she won't ride to work because she she's scared and we live five kilometers from her workplace oh wow Um, and that says something
1: yeah yeah and that's where uh, it's like a cultural shift that needs to happen and that's huge but Again, the one of the good things about COVID has been people re-examining what the bicycle means to them. And I'm hopeful, at least, that it means there might be some positive changes.
0: I mean, more people on bikes means more people who are conscious of the issues that come along with commuting and yeah. riding a bike, especially in a city. And- yeah if those people are aware that there's, you know, there's a problem that we need safer bike lanes, we need infrastructure that that helps bikes move around, helps them navigate, then I think, yeah, it just, we need those voices to help. And also we need cyclists to, like Lauren said, like, just be respectful. <laughs> Don't yeah. run red lights and follow the rules of the
1: road. And Well, there's, it, I mean, I take yeah. issue with the whole red light running thing myself yeah. because i will do it because yeah. sometimes it is safer for me to go through the red than it is to wait
0: i feel like um, there's a time in place
1: but yeah and i just but i think that issue is more again it just comes back to infrastructure was never put in place for people riding bikes it was only ever for drivers and for some reason drivers like the rules to apply to everyone else except themselves so something needs to change <laughs>
0: I kind of want to shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about the Women of Color Cycling Group UK which yeah. you mentioned um a, a while ago but I want to talk about how how this kind of started and when when it started.
1: Yeah, um so it's been an idea that's been around um, well we we officially started in November 2018. Um, but I had been talking to Jules Walker, do you know, Lady Velo on, mm-hmm. on Instagram and Twitter. Um, so she's written a book back in the frame, which I think is out in a nice, tiny compact paperback edition. Um, but we had interviewed her for the podcast and I had interviewed, um, uh, Aisha McGowan twice. And I remember her saying like she had searched for some sort of women of color or like a black girls do bike in in the UK and she's like it doesn't exist and I kind of turned to Jules I was like you should start one and she was like "Mm -mm, I'm okay like you know it's it's work it's to do these things and I knew I wouldn't be able to start it on my own either so it was always there as kind of like well this kind of should exist but no one's got the energy or the time. And then an article came out in, there's an online magazine called Galdem and a woman had written about how there were like zero black riders at Ride London, which is like a big um, ride that happened. And I never did it. It's not my cup of tea. I don't really care for sportives, but like it was this big, Route um, that did like the Olympic cycling route, uh, and a lot of people did it. It's a hundred miles, I want to say, uh, and a lot of people used it as a challenge to to work towards. And so she wrote an article about how she did this event, and she just saw no one else there that looked like her and felt really isolated. And I think that's when Jules and I looked at each other and we're like, "All right, let's just do this." and we kept it local we did london only we teamed up with the cycling cafe look Mum no hands um because they've got a nice big space and we decided we're going to meet once a month and just see what happens and and lo and behold people came and it was really nice and uh initially was just very much just a social thing where people would come you'd get a a hamburger and a drink and you'd sit around and chat and then when covid hit um, it became something we considered doing online and luckily so the person you spoke to abby about um on twitter uh is sarah who runs um her own like consultancy with Brené Brown um, and is a like very skilled facilitator. And she's like, I've got everything in place. I've got the Zoom. I know how to run a group of like 50 people. And so we decided to take it online and we decided to expand nationwide because that's the beauty of the internet is you don't have to be in the same room. And it worked again. We were really surprised, but pleased, and we we're like, oh, this is this is funny, this is working. Um, and then we had the killings of Ahmaud Arbery, and then Breonna Taylor, and then uh, George Floyd, and, and that like brought it to the next level where I started to see this as a group for, um for comfort and it's a safe space for people to talk and and not have to deal with news like that or they could if they wanted to but like with people who were feeling similarly and um one of the other things that came out of that was we decided to become a charity so we are now, and actually, we got the the notice for this last month. Where oh, sorry, we're still in November. Um, this month actually. So two years after, we are now officially a charitable incorporated organization, which means that we can now have um do fundraising and uh, apply for, uh, grants to then have programs to actually help people like deal with the barriers that um, people of color face when wanting to get into the bike world. Um, so there's been a huge, I mean, that was a big project over the summer was, uh, we formed a working group. There's about 10 of us that we all took on different aspects, all volunteering still, Uh, and doing different things around marketing and uh, organizational development and I mean it's it's been tough because again like all of us are just volunteering Um, but it's slowly coming along and soon we'll have a website but like (laughs) for now we're just on uh, Twitter and Instagram as WCCG underscore UK Um, and Yeah, we hope next year I'm going to be doing some, like, specific um, online maintenance courses. Um, Yeah, like, there's so many the coaching that we want to do. And it's just finding people of color who are able to do these things is a challenge also. Um, Who can do the – lead the workshops and – Yeah, it's, it's, um, I liken it to, so, you know, when people in the industry are like, well, we really want to hire a a black female mechanic, but they just don't exist. And I'm like, they do exist, but you have to find them, you have to seek them out. And you have to create that opportunity. Because people grow up with uh, society telling them, from the start this is what you're allowed to do this is where you're allowed to exist this is what you're allowed to be and unless you challenge that and create that it's never going to change and that's why I'm hoping actually um, LBK just got a grant and part of that is to create an apprenticeship program for uh, a young woman of color to get into bike mechanics Um, but it's a hard thing to do Um. it's like Whatever your dominant hand is, you have to do it with the other hand, you know, and you're constantly catching yourself and you're using your right hand again. Oh, we need to use the left hand. Like, you know, it's easy to just fall back on your old thoughts and your old habits and change is difficult. So you have to it's just constant work. But I see it as really positive. We've had a really really great response from people um the women in the group say like unanimously like this group makes them feel less alone um they feel like they're not the the odd one out like a lot of them are part of different cycling clubs but they will be the only black person in that group and they and it shouldn't be an issue but it is an issue you know it's one of those things where in an ideal world This shouldn't be a problem, but unfortunately, we we don't live in that perfect world. And so we've got to do the make the changes, you know, the the equity that needs to happen to level the playing field. So I feel like we've made some really great progress this year and next year is going to be we're going to have even more like really amazing programs to offer.
0: That's an, that's awesome, really cool. Let me know if there's anything that I can do to help. I mean, I'd love to get involved somehow
1: for sure yeah. I mean, from the get go, like just having vocal support online is, is really important um like being we've had some really terrible uh messages from people and Um, just having, knowing that people have our back and they support what we do is, is very necessary. So I see that as a way where people who, um, where white people can, uh, support these types of groups for existing. I think it's
2: just, um, going back to that podcast I listened about diversity in the sport, one guy, um, who asked a question just said, that, you know, he was riding with one of his other white male friends and he said, oh, well, maybe it's a socioeconomic reason that we don't see more people of colour riding or maybe it's just not their thing, but maybe it's just the fact that they don't feel welcome in this sport, in this realm. Um, and, yeah, we, we have to do better. And like Abby said, she wants to help. I want to help too, get more people included in this beautiful sport because like you said as well it's it's not just about competing but yeah. just enjoying it for the beauty of what it is and um yeah it goes back to like
0: what we were talking about about when you walk into a bike shop mm. it's kind of the same, like creating an, an open environment. And one of the reasons I was so interested to talk to somebody from this group was because the message that is on the Twitter profile photo says, we don't care what bike you ride or how far you ride or how often you ride, but it's a group for women of color who ride bikes.
1: Or, yeah. or curious. You don't even have yeah. to ride a bike. Like, or
0: want to ride bikes or yeah. want to understand a bike.
1: Yeah. yeah. And, and
2: I think as well, just in general, getting more people involved in cycling is um, if you have the capacity as a club, I know as a junior, um, I was really interested in the sport. And my club actually gave me a bike to try it. So I didn't have to invest any money in it. I got to go to a few little club runs. I got to meet some people and then I thought, you know what, even though there was like two, I think there was one other woman and one junior woman. There were three of us. I still thought like this is something for me, but um, making that available to people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, some people just go out and throw money at a bike. Um, They'll just lay down a few thousand because they can, (laughs) but not everyone can do that.
1: Most um, people can't, yeah. Exactly.
2: So um I think making it just more accessible in, in that respect. It's not like if you want to start running, you just throw on a pair of running shoes, right? There's more there's more to it.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I just I I get the feeling from some people that they just view equality as a zero sum game where if they, people start sponsoring black athletes, suddenly that means, well, then there's less spots for white athletes to get sponsored. And it's just like, that's totally not how you should be viewing this. Like, this is, we're getting more people into the sport. You know, we're growing the entire field. And, you shouldn't no one should be looking at this as like there can only be number one number one you know it's a really detrimental way of looking at the world and it requires I think people have that um natural we've been conditioned to have that reaction and it's like catching yourself and and it's like you know what if anyone wants to ride a bike I'm gonna help them get there and and people should use the power that they have and use that feeling of like if you feel like you said when you go into a bike workshop and you feel um disempowered and belittled like you could you could be angry that you're not being helped i think i'm hang on i'm wording this wrong so like the idea that um friends like white male friends who feel uh, attacked sometimes when these topics about racism come up um and then I have to bring up I'm like okay you know how you feel when you're riding a bike and like a driver is going to rev their engine behind you and swerves into you um and some people just feel like well I get attacked and I don't make a big deal about it like you shouldn't do that either you should just suck it up and deal with it it's not a big deal and like that's the wrong way to look at this like you should use the, uh, the fact that you've been in these scary, difficult situations as like empathy, where you can then empathize with people who have been in similar situations and use the power that you have then to try and change things.
2: Well, I imagine that, that feeling, that dread I have now <laughs> walking into a bike shop, not all of them, I've got a wonderful bike shop that just wasn't open at the time. But that could be the same feeling that you just described. If you know someone of color was to show up to a club run and yeah. it's just all exactly. mammals, um, exactly. and they're sort of looking at you, and you can you feel it. Like, why yeah. are you here?
1: <laughs> and they don't have to say anything. No, anything.
2: it's this this feeling, and I could ah, oh, I can just imagine how how that would feel. Even my first club run here in Belgium, um, they the women went with the C group and it was pretty much just women um and one man and I was like no no no, I'm going with the A's I'm gonna ride with the big boys like I used to race I can hold my my own and like some of them were just kind of looking at me and I was like all right I'm gonna give it to them like (laughs) but that was just that that confidence you were talking about riding in London um amongst the traffic and having to hold your own that's my confidence on the bike came from riding with men who used to push me around because they thought I shouldn't be there racing against them. Yeah. Um, and actually, over time, I earned their respect. So, yeah.
1: And it's kind of in in one way, it's really good to be able to have that skill to channel your your discomfort into like energy to to make yourself stronger. But at the other the other side of it is that they should have been more welcoming you know they Exactly
0: <laughs> Cycling has a tendency even for a white male to show up to a ride if his bike isn't up to par that like all the other guys on the ride Exactly I mean so it's not yep. the I'm not saying it's not a pro it's a problem the the situation with people of color who are trying to get into cycling or want to get into cycling and they can't because of the atmosphere but cycling in general has a bad atmosphere that we need to work on so oh, yeah yeah so i think it oh yeah it kind of goes to the roots of the not the sport but yes the sport because i mean look at i mean cycling pro- professional cycling is just white men <laughs> that's all it is
1: yeah
2: yeah. Well and I mean, like you said, Abby in the you've got a few um riders of colour, but um I don't know who was saying who was the really famous um British cyclist from the seventies? Um there were two of them.
1: Maurice, maybe? Yeah, Maurice Bert- Burton.
2: Yeah. I think and yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure it was him saying he was amazing. And I think, you know, he came up against Merckx in the six days and um, he was actually, like, smashing him. I'm pretty sure this is the, the same guy. Anyway.
0: yeah.
2: Um, And when Eddie said to him, like, oh, you know, the six days is kind of rigged, so he asked him if he would just lose the last round. Um, But that was quite an honour at the time. But he, he went on to say that he thinks that, one of the biggest issues here that we're seeing in professional cycling is that he doesn't want to see like black riders being um, just token riders on a team for the sake of diversity. He wants to see them winning bike races and he wants um, role models like, for example, Celine Alvarado yeah. could be an incredible role model um Definitely. and I think Taniel um Campbell as well is going to be a great role model but we need to see investment in those writers so they can actually reach that potential and yeah. not just be seen as as making up the numbers
1: yeah but I mean I mean Maurice says that but like how many of the the white writers on the team are just there as domestiques like what's what's wrong with having a lot of more writers of color as domestics, you know it's like they're still good and it shouldn't be you shouldn't have to have that pressure to be number one uh, in order to be accepted i think mm. uh, but i understand i think he's worried about tokenism but i just feel like yeah yeah um, that was the. I think the current way that the British, sorry, not just British cycling, but the cycling world is, professional cycling world is set up, is very much a boys' club, white boys' club, I should say. And they will, I mean, um, there's an exhibition called uh, Black British Champions. And I can't remember the doctor, uh, he's Black British Champions on Twitter. um, And he documents a lot of these. Um, black writers over the years who were consistently denied at the professional level. Like they'd go through the amateur level. Like Maurice was one of those people, um, and got to the point where you, you could be in the Olympics and then was overlooked for, um, and the spot was given to a white writer who was not as good, but because the coach saw something of themselves in that writer, they're like, I think I'm going to give him a chance. Mm. And, um, That is like that structural issue that needs to be addressed. Like, until you get people of color into the higher levels of like coaching and organizing, you're not going to see a a lot of change, I think. Exactly.
2: It's been the same with women, trying to get more women into power.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it's It's the the same same problem. We're fighting the same (laughs) person here. (laughs) Yep. Fighting the, the
0: patriarchy, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Middle-aged
1: white <Yeah. black> guy.
0: <laughs> My last question, because I promised you an hour, and we're already over. Is what we can do to help, and also what people listening can do to help? Because we always, Lauren and I, always get this question about how can we help with women's professional cycling, making it better. And, uh, we finally have an answer for that support the cyclist Alliance, but what can we, (laughs) we, the people do to help women of color, people of color to be welcome in cycling.
1: Part of it is the golden rule where it's just like, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If you've got someone new that's joining your club, just be really welcoming. Like people have to, to really put themselves out there. Um, I think, uh, people of color, especially to try something new. So as long as you make it really easy for people to get involved, um, that's, that's win-win for everyone. You know, that means that person's going to stick to the sport. They're going to stick to your club. Um, as far as like cycling media, I think trying to interview people outside the usual, you know, I guess, like, I really appreciate you reaching out to me, because I feel like I've got a different point of view from some people, well, majority of people on this. Um, Or, yeah, it's just a different, it's a new point of view, maybe. Um, But like, reaching out to up and coming writers who, you know, being tapped for an interview can be a real morale booster. Um, and it makes you feel like you're being recognized for what you're doing. And if you're focusing on cycling as a sport, like that's it, it of course it takes work. It's going to be work to find those riders because they're not as readily available. Um, and you don't have to profile people because they're, it, it's like getting away again from that model of only talking to the winners. Like it's, it's not about that. It's about people who love the sport and who are giving up like their weekends and after school to to participate and work out. Um, I guess it's all it's always about branching out and getting like different perspectives. I think the media needs to do better in that respect. Um, and then also just speaking out, Online. I mean, I hate dealing with trolls because, you know, don't feed the trolls. But at the same time, making it clear like this is where you stand, this is what you support. Um, having some people are genuinely interested and want to have a, a reasonable discussion about race and the issues surrounding it and just um, being patient, I guess, with that. But also, like, you know, if you don't have the energy, then don't do it because you're just going to feel worse afterwards. (laughs) But I think, um, and just following, um, writers of color, it's a really the quick and easy way to support is just go onto Twitter and Instagram or wherever you hang out and follow these writers and see what they're up to and support them.
0: Great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. It's just been amazing getting your perspective on, on everything and
1: yeah. Oh, and uh, sorry, quick shout out to um, Ciclista Zine. I think um, Christina has been doing an amazing job of like uh, yeah. bringing, shedding light on the cycling world of like these are our like hidden racist structures that um, need to get torn down. And she's created like a zine where people can read different people's perspectives um people of color non-binary people um trans people who are who love bikes who love cycling and i think that's the the one thing that binds us all together is how much we love i'll um
0: throw her information also in the show notes so for everyone listening you can find pretty much everything we talked about i'll link in the show notes uh the twitter for women of color cycling group and also for the london bike kitchen all of that stuff will all be done below so if anyone is interested you can go check it out yourself and yeah cool
2: great hey hey abby i have a great idea if we get to go to um the yes yeah yeah
0: yep. Yep. i'm in you'll be seeing us jenny yeah yay <laughs> when is that Hopefully, ne- well, hopefully next May. year. Did they cancel it already? I don't know.
1: <laughs> no, let's let's
0: not go
2: down that rabbit hole. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we'll live in hope. Yeah, yeah,
0: for sure. We'll be there. That would be awesome. Lauren and I yeah. take a crash course in how to be mechanics because I'm pretty sure so, the yeah. two of us only know how to change a flat tire.
1: Well, it's <laughs> more than what most people can do. So you're ahead already. <laughs>